0: Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your good hand upon us, all that we have in Christ. Thank you for the peace in the midst of the storm. Thank you for pursuing us, making us your children, even when we are undeserving. Father, thank you for this time as we study our Bibles. May it just be a continuation of our worship as we sit quietly before you. Use this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. I think if you think with me, you've felt that nagging, funny, fleeting thought. You might not even be able to articulate it, but you've felt it. Maybe while you were relaxing in the family room... Comfortable and cuddled in in the overstuffed chairs with your family, eating pizza, enjoying an evening of rest, and a game or an enjoyable program with your family, and a commercial comes on. And it's an up close picture of the most pitiful homeless children living in a trash dump. And as the picture pans up close to the children's face. It's a horribly disfigured face with an unrepaired cleft palate that can only, in reality, make every bite of food, even every breath of air that that child has ever had, miserable. And deep inside, don't you think this thought, that's not the way it's supposed to be. News comes on, and we hear that it's been another bloody, brutal weekend in Chicago. And the camera moves to a wailing mother whose teenager was shot down walking home from school. And that little feeling comes up inside, and that little glimpse of reality flashes. And you say to yourself, That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful autumn evening. You have enjoyed a wonderful day in the woods and field. And as evening falls, you watch a beautiful young white-tailed buck work its way toward you. He's nosing the leaves for acorns. And with one well-aimed shot, you instantly drop it in its tracks. And as you approach your prize with skinning knife in hand, there is a flickering thought that says, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. A young couple leaves my office, heads are bowed down, shoulders are drooped, they are overwhelmed with the reality of their own broken home and marriage, a loveless, miserable, shouting, cursing mess, and deep inside they wish they could just be done with it all. And I can't help but think as they walk away, it's just not supposed to be this way. The illustrations are endless and the evidence is overwhelming that something has changed from how it was supposed to be. We've been looking at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 in our sin series. You do not have to turn there. But we, I remind you that we've, we've amplified the fact that when God created, He said it was good. It was good. But then when we get to Genesis chapter 3, as we looked last week, and evidently based upon the first stage that we looked at, that that beautiful morning star Lucifer angel welled up with pride and given an ability to make moral decisions turned against God, wanting to be God, and God expels him from his presence, from the very mountain of God, the most wonderful place that any created creature could be invited, and he's expelled from that place, and he falls, he becomes the prince of the power of the air, he becomes the ruler of this world, and he then goes about seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion, he disguises himself, or indwells this particular creature in the garden of Eden, where It was good. And God would even come and walk in the cool of the evening. And then when Eve evidently separated from her husband from a distance, the serpent whispers in her ear, and she is deceived and she eats of the fruit that God said, Do not eat of that. It will engage and enlighten your conscience. You will recognize that you have disobeyed me. And death and sin will enter the world. She walks over, gives it to her husband Adam. The Bible is absolutely clear that he was not one bit deceived, but he willingly, rebelliously, immediately partook of the fruit. And something happened. From that time on, nothing has been the way it was supposed to be. Sin is now a reality in creation. And in fact, as the uh, foundational Title to our sermon series says, Sin is even worse than you think it is. Today, I want us to pick up where we started, where we left off last week, laying a foundation theologically for our understanding of, of how we are to view ourselves in light of this curse of sin. The Bible is absolutely replete with evidence and in fact, just like when you study creation and you look at the, at the world, the created world around us, everything around us that you observe screams of the reality of creation in like manner. When you study what is happening through the history and course of mankind, everything screams of the reality of this story that it's exactly the way it said it was. Nothing's the way it's supposed to be and everything is now broken and apart from the redeeming power of the cross of Christ, there's no hope. If we don't get this part of the story correct, then we don't understand every, anything. Nothing quite makes sense to us. We stopped in the middle of our message last week, and as we run up to re-enter it, I want us to, to cover two points today. First of all, I'd like us to add to our sermon today, early on, with a look of a reminder of, number one, the seriousness of sin, Uh, Just continuing to build our understanding of the seriousness of sin. And then as we finish our list from last week, I want you to be reminded of the sadness of sin. Let's do a little bit of Bible study uh, to begin with here. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. And we only have a couple of minutes to do this, and it won't take us long. But I want to show you something in our Bibles, by, and we can do this particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to just reference for you a little word study. You see, one of the ways that we can identify and amplify and demonstrate how serious sin is is by simply doing a word study in our bibles as to the different terms that are used to describe when man and women men and women humankind man steps out of the sphere And the place and the purpose for which God has designed him. And that's how we're defining sin. Anything we do that is outside of the will of God. And we remind ourselves from last week that the serpent tried to redefine the will of God tried to realign them and and in so doing it's as though he pulled them out from the sphere of the part of God's plan of blessing that if you stay here you will be blessed and the serpent talked them out of that sphere and they exited and they now are outside of the will of God and so anything I do that contradicts the character and the will of God is sin. The Bible has literally dozens of words that describe sin to us. And I just wanted to take a few minutes in our message time this morning and I wanted to show you how by simply studying those words, it it just magnifies for us the reality of the fact that, that depravity and disease and death, all brought about by sin, are even more horrible than we realize. One of the things that I want to caution you about is this concept, and we're going to talk about this more in the future but one of the things that people have in our culture particularly is a mindset that, that certain behaviors or attitudes are all okay as long as you're dealing with consenting adults, might be the way they would say it. As long as, as, long as this is what we want to do, as long as everybody's in agreement here... What's the big deal? It can't be sin. What I need you to understand early on as we define sin is that sin really has much less to do with the people around you and it has everything to do with the violation of the character of God. What makes sin serious isn't whether it really hurts somebody or whether they agree or don't agree with what you're doing or thinking. What makes sin so heinous, what makes sin so wicked, is what it does to the character and mind of God. It defames Him. It contradicts Him. It blasphemes Him. It stomps on His good glory. That's what should scare the living daylights out of us. What does God think about me and my sin? And this little word study will help you. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter Uh, 7 to begin with. I'm sticking to Deuteronomy because a few hand-picked words simply to to model what I'm talking about are found right here in Deuteronomy and we can just flip our pages in chronological order. Let me show you a few of these words. Number one, the word is abomination. Abomination. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 25 and 26 for example. Okay, so what we're going to do, we're looking at words that are are translated in our Bible in different ways, all that encapsulate and capture the reality of sin in the mind of God. Alright? And so this is what makes sin so serious. Chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. The carved images, we're just jumping right into the middle of these passages. The carved images of their gods, little g, you shall burn with fire, God says to his people. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared for it. Here's why. Because it is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's one of the words... That is used. It is a general word describing that which is particularly reprehensible to God. And it's translated abomination. Something that is reprehensible. Well, that's a good word, isn't it? It just speaks. That which is reprehensible to God. An abomination. Why is sin so serious? Because it's an abomination. It's reprehensible to a holy God. Don't even take the gold and silver off those idols, just get rid of them. It's reprehensible. And it's translated, this Hebrew word is translated, abomination. And turn to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 now. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And let me show you another word. This word is the word transgression. Transgression. It's, It's multiple times translated in the Bible as a transgression. It literally means to cross over. To cross over. There's a line drawn, and you're not to cross that line... And when you cross that line, you transgress. You move into a place that you shouldn't be. And when God is the one who has defined the parameters, and you transgress God's parameters, it's what we call sin. It's why it's so abhorrent. It's why it's so bad. Because God has drawn the boundaries, and we cross the boundaries. Deuteronomy 17, look at verses 2 through 5. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in, here's the word, in transgressing his covenant, crossing the line moving over from what god agreed is correct and right transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which i have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination there's our first word abomination has been done in israel then you shall bring out your gate out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death. We don't like that. What what is that all about? I'll tell you one reason why we don't like it is because we don't think sin's so bad. Well, that ain't so big a deal. It's not not that big of a deal. Let him live, man. He's, he's He's my buddy. We like to eat Doritos and watch football together. What's the deal? And under this Theocracy, where God was the king and he laid down the rules to his people and i want to tell you something he said. Don't even think about transgressing my law. And when you step across the line and if you diligently inquire as a community and it's true, take them out to the city gates and put them to death. <sighs> I'm pretty comfortable with sin, aren't you? And number three word. Abomination, transgression. The third word is rebellion. It's a word that's translated rebellion. Um, there are many other passages in Scripture. This, verse's word, this Hebrew word is sometimes also translated transgression to violate. It's a rebellion. Look at chapter 21 and verse 18 and how it's used here. This is a wake-up call for young people. If a man has a stubborn and, here's the word, rebellious, you could just say sinful. It's a word for sin. For rejecting the authority, for moving outside the will of the rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. And though they discipline, he will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city gate. Of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn, and there's the word again, rebellious. He will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Oh, that's terrible. Listen, this is another reminder in the form of the word rebellion, how awful sin is to God. Just because we're comfortable with it, just because our world redefines it, doesn't mean that you can look the other way on it. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is what we should do today. Praise God, we're under a new covenant. And praise God, Jesus has been taken outside the city gate and stoned in my place. And I don't have to go out there and be stoned by rocks. Abomination, transgression, rebellion... Number 4, chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Look what it says. Look at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death, and here's our fourth word, evil, evil. It's uh, a word that is used at least 444 times. In the Old Testament, for that which is evil or badness. It's used even in the translation work to describe food that is spoiled. Rotten food. It's gone bad. In the New Testament, some of you know a little bit of, of Greek. It's the word kakos, bad. Translated bad in Greek. Evil is how it's translated often, over 400 times. Look what it says. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and so forth of blessing. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, then you shall surely die, perish, perish. The seriousness of sin. This affront to a holy God. The fifth, you don't have to turn there, but it's the word that's translated in our Bibles for sin. S-I-N. Exodus 20.20 is an example. We've been there so many times. This is the most common word in Exodus 20.20. He says, I give you these commands so that you will not sin. Sin. We're given these commands, Exodus twenty twenty, so that you will not sin. It's the most common word in our Bible, translated S-I-N, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, over 500 times. It literally means to miss the mark. But what you need to understand, it's not just like I'm shooting at my target and I happen to miss the mark. It is when I'm shooting at my target and I decide I'm going to shoot my neighbor's house. I don't want to hit the mark. It has that innuendo to it. It has that meaning to it. I miss the mark, but I don't just miss the mark because I missed the mark. I miss the mark because I don't like to hit the mark and I don't care about hitting the mark and I'd rather miss the mark. It's a willful, a willful realignment of the will of God missing the mark. The word in our Greek New Testament is hamartia. And that's where we get, some of you guys are studying this stuff, it gets, we get the word Hamardiology. Sin. The doctrine of sin. Hamardiology. We get it from this very word that's translated sin. The seriousness of sin. We see it in the very verbiage, the very language of the Bible. Now to the sadness of sin. The sadness of sin. We've seen that the Bible implies very strongly that sin finds its source In the moral decision making of created beings when they decide of their own, out of their lust and desire to turn away from the will of God. Lucifer did that. He influences Adam and Eve to do that. Nothing's been the same ever since. And what I want to do is very quickly, briefly... um, Describe now the residual fallout of what happened when Adam sinned. We're in Romans chapter 5. We've looked at the seriousness of sin. Now let's remind ourselves and continue to base our foundation of our study on the sadness of sin. The sadness of sin. Romans chapter 5 is kind of the clearest passage in one place. Let me assure you that this is laced throughout our entire Bible's that throughout all the pages of Scripture, the reality of what I'm going to teach you right now, what we started last week, and what is found in a concentrated form here, in Romans chapter 5, is just throughout Scripture. Last week, we talked about, and here's how you should think about this. It's like, um, you know how when you see or hear like, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, or there's an atomic bomb went off, or or there's a nuclear power plant that, that cracks, what happens? There's like a geyser, of nuclear radiation and fallout, and then it just settles in all around us and it contaminates everybody and everything all around it. Think about when Adam took the forbidden fruit, it was like a, a, a nuclear bomb of sin went off that is now settling its, its radioactive sin dust upon all of us through all the centuries, through all the ages, forever, because of that one act. And we read in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 look, let your eyes look there that therefore that this sin came into the world through one man through through the influence of the serpent Satan himself sin came into the world through this one man and this word sin here is not a particular kind of sin it's sin in general it is the reality of sin sin now exists That's what the word means. Not just like, uh, you know, stealing a candy bar sin. It includes that, but it's not that. It's sin in its general form. Sin now exists, and it came into the world through one man. How would you like to be that one man? Oh, man. and he's still scratching his head. I have news for you. You are that one man. But uh, let's move on. And it says, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on. Look at, Let your eyes glance down at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Okay, that one sin led to the trespass for all men. Let's very quickly turn to Psalm chapter 14. And I want to show you something here. Psalm chapter 14. Psalm chapter 14, this is, there are numerous passages even in the Old Testament that teach point number one now on the residual fallout. This is the, the nuclear fallout of the dust of sin. Number one, and we covered this last week, but I want to remind you of it, is now depravity exists. We are all depraved. We are all sinful. We use the phrase Total depravity, and I'll remind you what that means. Look what the psalmist said in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. He says, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. I wonder if there's any fools here this morning. I hope not. I hope that you can be convicted by the power of the love of God through Christ. Admit your sinfulness and be saved today. Don't be a fool who says in their heart there is no God. And then look what he says. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord, verse 2, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become, look at the next word, ESV says, corrupt. Vile, spoiled, bad food. There is none who does good, not even one. Back to Romans 5, what we're talking about, number one on our fallout list, is we now must deal with the reality of total depravity. Why is it total? It's total, number one, because it's universal. All people everywhere in the world, no matter where you live, are depraved. You will not find, all of a sudden, in the back bush of the Amazon, a baby that was born, and lo and behold, it missed the point of depravity. All all babies ever born anywhere are depraved. And it's universal, so it's total in that sense. And then it's complete. We call it total depravity because it's a complete depravity. That is, that though even some of the worst pagan sinners will not do every sin there is to do on the planet, yet completely thorough in all of us is an absolute inability to muster up any goodness that can impress a holy God and therefore allow us into His heaven. And so it is a complete depravity. The second thing we learn from this is, number two, that we, have, we now bear an individual responsibility. Okay, so the nuclear fallout dust of sin is falling on us, and it has brought total depravity. This is the reality of the history of mankind. The second thing it has brought is a personal responsibility. Go, let your eyes go back to, to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Look what he says. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So sin, so death spread to all men. Look at the next phrase. Because all sinned. And so what Paul is teaching here in really a complex passage of Scripture and what the Bible teaches is that when Adam sinned, we sinned. In the mind of God, though we still only existed in the loins of Adam, and we were not even in existence yet, the first man through whom the human race would spring, it's as though we were in Adam in that sense. And when he ate and disobeyed, we were in him. And we remember we covered this at the end of our message last week, that his sin was then imputed down to us. In the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, that is, we receive it, credited to our account, it's passed on over. I have a little illustration that I was thinking of that, that maybe helps you understand how Adam's sin is imputed to us. Let's pretend that two friends, Jank and Joe, are on a road trip in a car. And Joe owns the car. And Cenk, his friend, is driving Joe's car, and Joe is asleep in the back seat. And somebody runs a stop sign and plows into him, and they have a major wreck on this trip, when Cenk, who doesn't own the car, driving Joe's car, who's asleep in the back seat, is at the wheel, and they have a horrible wreck. It appears that that it wasn't Jenks' fault, but the thing goes to court, so you got a lawyer up, you're going to court, you're lorrying up, you have a lawyer, and (laughs) you have representation in the court, and then your lawyer calls you, uh, lawyer, it kind of rhymes with liar, but lawyer uh, is, I shouldn't have said that, and um, (laughs) um, a lawyer, so then he calls you, and he says, he calls Joe. He calls Joe, who was asleep in the back seat. And he says, Joe, you need to know that the people who, were, who hit you have an attorney. They've called me. They're going to fight this. And they say that Cenk crossed into their lane. And if this goes through and they win, Jenk's guilt will be imputed to you because you own the car and you're going to be liable. And Joe says, I was asleep in the back seat. It doesn't matter you own the car but Jenk was driving your car and in a sense it's as though we all owned the garden and owned the fruit but Adam was driving but we're the owners and it's going to be imputed down to us and we have a personal individual responsibility and this is what makes us guilty in the eyes of God. This imputed sin is what, dema- what makes us guilty when we stand before God. In, in a very real way, before you even do anything sinful, you are a sinner. And it's because you are a sinner that you sin. That raises the question, then, do babies go to heaven? We'll answer that another day. Don't miss it. You never know when it's going to come up. <laughs> Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. I think the answer is yes, by the way. The third thing that I want you to see, number, number one, the dust of sin is falling around us. It's total depravity. Number two, it's individual responsibility. Number three, and this is very important in our foundational understanding of sin, is our personal inability. We've just talked about individual responsibility, that we're culpable for Adam's sin in the mind of God But you need to know that added to that, as the sin dust settles on us, that we have a personal inability to do anything about it. That's incredible. This is all part of our homardiology. Turn to chapter 8 of Romans. Flip the page. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and look at verses 7 and 8. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Romans chapter 8. And this is laced. Throughout scripture, I assure you. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, okay? The person who who is in the flesh, not spiritual, okay, for it does not submit to God's law. In our natural man, in our flesh, our natural nature, we do not naturally submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot. Not only do we not, Before I know Christ, I cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There it is, my personal inability to stand before a holy God and to argue with Him that He should let me into His heaven and that I have some kind of a good that is worth His presence, in His presence. And He would say, you don't know how bad the sin is. And you, you're the owner of the car and he sinned and you're culpable and it's been imputed to you and get out of my presence. And and I have absolutely no ability to turn it. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can even understand it? At this point, number four of the fallout dust was a global futility. While you're in chapter 8, look at verse 18. A global futility. Notice verse 18, For creation, verse 19, For creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, there's the word, to futility. It means emptiness. Change. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It didn't do it willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. See, creation is in bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Listen, another fallout, and we'll comment more about this directly, is that this whole world is not the way it's supposed to be. Tsunami waves that wipe out whole villages and communities and coastlines. Hurricanes that destroy... Uh, Pacific Islands, nuclear power plants that split open and contaminate entire cities and bring ruination. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's contaminated. All creation is contaminated. I remember when I was a kid working on a dairy farm, milking cows in Michigan, that one time we had a batch of green chop where we were, we were chopping green hay in the spring and it had a bunch of garlic in it and we didn't realize it and we fed it to our cows and so the milk became contaminated. It smelled and tasted like garlic. It, it permeated it. You couldn't get it out. You couldn't extract it. You had to take the milk and turn the valve and run it into the ditch and let it run down the road. Sell it to the guy for hog food. It permeated That's how creation is. And so, though it's not a moral evil now that when a hurricane hits or Storm Sandy hits, that's not a moral evil, but it is a direct result of sin and evil. Finally, number five, the fifth fallout. The fifth fallout. We've talked about total depravity individual responsibility, our personal inability to react, the global futility of what we see of creation groaning under sin, we now have to deal with finally, and we will dismiss shortly, an eternal mortality. The bottom line of our doctrine of homardiology is Romans 6.23. Can you say it with me? For the wages of sin is death. Just stop there. Eternal mortality. There's multiple kinds of death, and we'll delve into that another day. But you need to know that at the foundation of our understanding of sin is that it always brings death. Say the verse with me again. Now let's finish it. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through. Amen and amen. Will you stand with me? As you stand, and we bow in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Do you have eternal life in Jesus Christ? Are you born again today? Are you right with God? Our elder, Alan Blalack, will be right down front, waiting as you're dismissed and leave. If you want to pray with him, you want to discuss further what it means to have this this sin dust scrubbed off by the wonderful shower of the fountain of the blood of Christ. You come and meet with Him and sit here and bow your head and and pray and remember that the mortal futility and eternal damnation that comes from sin doesn't have to be yours because of the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, what amazing realities we have here in the doctrine of sin And we recognize how serious sin is and we recognize how sad sin is. And that it brought depravity and it brought disease and it brought death. These horrible D's. Thank you though for the love of Christ and His willingness to go to the cross and be our sin bearer. Take our sin. Work in our hearts. Clear our minds. As we go to class now, Would you please just continue to use your word to renew us, renew our minds, and strengthen us in our walk? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.